Strictly Business is brought to you in part by City National Bank, the bank who makes it their business to be personal. A City National Relationship Manager can anticipate the financial needs that make the entertainment and tech industries tick. That's because they've been doing it for more than 65 years. Need to figure out day-to-day finances? Done. Someone that understands intellectual property, licensing, and royalties? Absolutely. City National understands the industry because they were born in it. Visit cnb.com and get started. City National Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, business editor for Variety. Today, my guest is Ted Sarandos, co-CEO and chief content officer for Netflix. Sarandos has a view of the global entertainment industry like no other, because no other entertainment company has ever had the global reach and local presence that Netflix has. In our wide-ranging interview, Sarandos talks about what they've learned from their aggressive global push over the past five years and how it's changed the way Netflix views the overall content business. He also talks about navigating coronavirus curveballs, the controversy over the French art house film Cuties, and why he recently made a big change in Netflix's senior management ranks. The interview was held in conjunction with the presentation of the Vanguard Award to Sarandos and Netflix from Variety and the MIPCOM Global Content Conference. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us for what is sure to be a lively conversation about the global entertainment business with none other than Ted Sarandos, Chief Content Officer and Co-CEO of Netflix. I'm Cynthia Littleton, Business Editor for Variety. And on behalf of Variety and MIPCOM, we are very pleased to award Variety's Vanguard Award for Achievement and Impact in the Global Television Business to Ted Sarandos and Netflix. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us, Ted, in this virtual format. We would otherwise be on the quasset, but uh, we, we can have a toast in future years. Absolutely. If, you know, if France would have us, we would have come. But. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would not mind being on the coast of France right now. I hear you. I hear you. So uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, obviously, to Variety and everyone at MIPCOM for this great honor. And uh, really looking forward to chatting with you this morning. Oh, uh, you're welcome. So I thought we would start kind of where it began for you on the, on the, in the global arena. Um, it's hard to believe, but it's coming up on five years January 7th, 2016, you were at the CES conference in Las Vegas and you very dramatically flipped the switch and took Netflix into more than 130 countries on one day. I I think that one move was one of the things that really, I think, galvanized Hollywood's attention. And I think the global entertainment industry kind of looked and thought, whoa, this is a different kind of company. When you were making that move, uh, almost five years ago, did you know, did, did you have a sense of what a profound impact that going global in that degree, you know, expanding that, that to that many territories that quickly in one fell swoop, did you know what kind of an impact that would have on your business? Well, you know, the, the company was uh, an, an internet company, even though we were only mailing DVDs around the U.S. to start with, 
the, the, the ability to be a global company at a global entertainment company uh, was uniquely enabled by the internet. Uh, the way that um, being a A to Z DVD rental company uh, was owned, was uniquely enabled by the internet back at the beginning of Netflix. Uh, but I think that we've always thought that there was a, an interesting lack of equilibrium in the storytelling arena where the U.S. represented such a small percentage of the world population and such a large percent of total watching of content around the world. Uh, so you knew, we knew that there were great storytellers. We knew that there was great content coming from all over the world, but the existing distribution models made it pretty difficult for anything but uh, domestic content to travel internationally. Um, but so we, we looked at it early, which was like, what well, the more time we spent in more countries, the more you got to understand about the local appetites and local culture, local history, local storytelling, local production ecosystems, and realize there was an enormous opportunity for underserved audiences who've been pretty dramatically underserved up to that point. Uh, for us to be able to be um, as meaningful to a customer in India as we are in Indiana. Uh, that was kind of the way we thought about it back five years ago. Mm -hmm. Were, was, did you have nerves at that time? It's kind of like, you know, you turn the lights on. Did you have any worries that you wouldn't get meaningful numbers of subscribers? Uh, you know, at the time it was really uh, the, uh, that, that, that literally flipped the switch, go live in 130 countries. It was at that time, it wasn't like we were specializing in any of them. You know, we had a couple, right. we had some international territories launched ahead of that. Uh, but these 130 countries were basically just entering for the first time with the Netflix product as it was offered to most people in the world. Uh, localized in many countries and many languages. Uh, but at the time, we didn't have local payment options in many cases uh, or local subtitles and dubs in some cases. So in those that early, early pass, it was very much a, hey, if you like Western content and you have an international credit card, uh, and you've heard about Netflix, now you can watch it. Uh, and then we just then just started more surgically looking country by country, territory by territory uh, at doing everything from localizing the content that we had uh, to localizing the payment methodologies uh, and also to, uh, in many cases, producing original content in local language in those countries. Mm -hmm. Was there any one market or region that really fired up your appetite for local language production to, to really go for it in that? On that scale? Well, our first time out was, um, you know, we did in Mexico. In Mexico, when we made um, uh, Club de Cuervos, uh, we had an opportunity to look at, say, well, that's a show that not only worked really well in Mexico, uh, but it pretty much serves the Spanish-speaking world. Uh, so you really understand that you've got some opportunity to uh, build scale in some places in the world. And other stories, in other places where, like Japan, which was, a, you know, such a huge media market, and it's almost exclusively J Japanese content in Japan. Uh, the right. History, taste, culture, all those things that steer that population to mostly enjoy Japanese content. But you had these challenges of saying, how do you, you know, on one hand, you could take a Stranger Things that's almost totally global. Uh, but prior to that, we didn't have a lot of experience uh, with um, non-English language shows being very global. Uh, and then, you know, fast right. forward, just, you know, launched, uh, uh, we have a new season of the Casa de Papel that just came out this year. And you look at that show. And that show is enormous globally uh, and it's Spanish language and it's film, you know, it's a show from Spain. Uh, so you have the opportunity to produce at scale in local languages. Uh, it's an incredible, it's incredible when you get it right. Um, and I do think that is, you know, trusting the storytellers in the region, uh, giving them a big platform and the opportunity to talk to the world in some, in some cases for the first time. Mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, in this, in, in this new on-demand format, which is in an, 
of itself is so is revolutionary for markets where you know the the overall the notion of you know private private networks is still relatively young. So. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, of course, in in your global network, China is is a is a big gap in terms of where you are. You know, it's been well documented that the Chinese government has not uh, has not welcomed Netflix. Is there any progress or any any effort to get into that market? You know, we've not meaningfully in the last couple of years invested in trying to get there. I think that the, to your point, I think the the local government in China uh, is not would like the Chinese version of Netflix to be Chinese, um, and so I think we have a lot of uh, a lot of folks in the industry. I think have been you know running into walls trying to make trying to change that, and eventually, eventually that eventually those walls will come down. Uh, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime really soon. And I'm glad that we spend most of our energies. Uh, in countries that are um, that welcome uh, Netflix to be part of the entertainment landscape, mm-hmm. um, with all of the local language content that you are doing now, I, I was wondering how do you, you must have to schedule your time to to watch some all of that content or watch at least a sampling of it? Do you, do you literally like apportion your schedule by continent, maybe or? Uh, you know what I really miss with it all. In our current times of, uh, of, of COVID restrictions, what I really miss is the international travel uh, beyond just the ability to get out and see people around the world. Uh, those long plane rides were really accommodating to catching up on the viewing, uh, to catch watching cuts of episodes. And, yeah, and I bet. So, uh, so I do have to be more disciplined about regimenting my time to make sure that uh, I can get, uh, get in front of some of the content. And I've, the key thing really to that is when I, we first started this, you know, we were doing two or three shows and you could watch every cut, read every draft of every script. And today, you know, it's not unusual for shows to come on Netflix without me having seen any of, any of it. And that's because we've got, I've got incredible teams in each of these content verticals, in each of these countries uh, that are producing great original content. And they're really empowered. Uh, there's great, hugely experienced. And I get to step in sometimes when things are particularly challenging or, partic- or uh, particularly celebratory. Uh, that I'm part of that, but in, in general, the teams that I have uh, enable this entire thing to scale. Um, I knew going, you know, looking at those early days that if we bottleneck decision behind me, uh, we'd never get anywhere. Uh, so we really had to, particularly now that we're operating in, you know, every time zone in the world. So the opportunity to uh, enable people to uh, make great choices and come up with great television and film for the world uh, has been one of the things I'm most gratified by how this all turned out. Um, and that it, it really enabled it to scale in a way that I think entertainment companies have a difficult time scaling because they historically are, you know, wrapped around these kind of cult of personalities or golden, this idea of golden guts and all those things. Uh, I, I hopefully if I have a golden gut, it's for people um, and their ability to make great choices. You have so local local buyers, local managers have green have green light authority in essence. They can order and commission content. Correct. On their own. On their own. And, they, you know, there's some things, obviously, you want to check in with. But for the most part, you know, they know those markets better than we do. And, you know, we, at his example, um, uh, Min Young, who's an executive of ours in Korea, uh, she had come up pretty, you know, pretty fast in, in, uh, at Netflix. And her, her sense of the production e- e- uh, ecosystem in Korea was obviously far better than anybody at Netflix at the time. Uh, and she's had incredible success uh, with our local language originals, uh, film and television in Korea that are serving the Korean market, but also serving throughout APAC. And every once in a while you get one that just serves the world. 
Um, we had a, a film, an original film that came out this quarter, um, Hashtag Alive, uh, that it was a big global success, one of our top non-English films ever on Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, have you, having, you know, watched a, uh, you know, a sampling of shows undoubtedly from so many regions, you know, looking at comedies and dramas and I'm sure narrative and, and non-narrative, are there anything, you know, I would imagine that you've become something of a student of cultures around the world. Are there any similarities that you find in dramas or similarities that you find in comedies or, or differences that stand out in your mind for, for content in various regions? I'm always interested in what, you know, how similar the world is more so than I am in like what are the unique differences? Uh, because I think people are mostly surprised at how similar tastes are, you know, like, there's all this conventional wisdom about the entertainment business, about what does and doesn't travel. Most of it turns out not to be true. Uh, what really travels is um, great storytelling, um, super authentic characters that, you can that people can relate to somewhere in the world. Uh, and I think that uh, this um, notion of trying to reverse engineering global storytelling is silly because really the things that have been most successful are the things that are most authentically local. So the, the better we do at identifying those stories that are authentically local, the better success we have. So that, that helps a lot. Uh, playing down the other convention path, convention paths, like uh, French, French comedy uh, plays huge in France and never travels. Uh, well, we had a great show called Plancour, a great rom-com uh, that plays all over Europe and all over the world, uh, just by way of example. Uh, right now, our show, Emily in Paris, which is obviously an English language show, American character set in Europe. You'd think that's kind of a reverse engineering story, but it's, just a, it's a classic fish out of water story. So it play, that's why it plays so well uh, everywhere in the world. So I think in, in general, the one thing that, that has been most fascinating, Mexico was one of our early launches and one of our early original content plays. And uh, the telenovelas obviously are quite popular uh, in Mexico. And we've kind of evolved what a, what a telenovela can look like. Um, and mm -hmm. I think you know, this, this year, recently, we released a show called Dark Desire. Um, that was an enormous success in Mexico, but also played everywhere that people really love that kind of highly serialized, soapy storytelling. Uh, and so that show was a huge success for us in India and in Turkey uh, and in the U.S. because it speaks well to the Spanish-speaking community in the U.S. We have seen a bit of a culture, a culture clash in the world and kind of coming through Netflix in the last couple of weeks in the United States, there's been a bit of an outcry over a movie that you have on the platform, Cuties, um, a movie that, uh, you know, played Sundance, gathered acclaim at Sundance. When it came on Netflix and was very available to the world, you know, I don't have to tell you, there has been some outcry in pockets in the U.S. How, how do you feel about that? Does it, it seems to many people that this is a, you know, that this is, um, it's a, it's a dangerous on a First Amendment. Um, on a First Amendment basis in the, in the United States. But it's also interesting in that Netflix really has created something of a global village. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm frankly, I'm, I'm surprised that it has been more discussion about the First Amendment implications about this film. Um, it's a, uh, a, a film that I would argue is very misunderstood with some audiences, uh, uniquely in the, in the United States. Um, I think the film itself uh, speaks for itself. It's a... Um, a very personal coming-of-age film. Uh, the the direct, it's the director's story, um, and the film is you know obviously played uh, very well um, uh, at Sundance and uh, without any of this controversy, uh, played 
uh, in theaters throughout Europe uh, with, without any of this controversy. Uh, and the film, I think, does speak for itself. And I think it's, it's a little surprising that in 2020 America, we're having a, a, a discussion about censoring storytelling. Yeah, and you, I mean, it, I think I know the answer, but you have not considered making any changes to the movie or, or, or limiting its access in any way? No. Um, let's talk about a little more specifically, like, are there, are there certain conditions in markets that you look at before you decide to invest big in original content? Is there like a, you know, broadband penetration, or is there like a certain number of subs that you need in a market before you'll go kind of deep on original original content for that region? I think we're looking at like some some uh, markets. Um, when we look at the opportunity, right? We're looking our addressable audience really is everybody with access to the internet and a screen. Right. So it's pretty big that way. So, so if you only think about it as broadband penetration. Uh, you miss the big population of folks who watch most of their content on mobile phones and through, and connect to the internet via mobile. So I do think that we have the opportunity is bigger than broadband penetration or pay television penetration. Uh, those are the easy ones uh, because I think it goes to um, uh, socioeconomics of that country uh, that you know you have an opportunity to reach audiences quickly. Um, and so, but I think it, then the next piece of it is kind of the the entertainment cultures right of these countries that really thrive on storytelling, uh, big pay television markets, big uh, movie going, all those kind of things. So there's a whole list of things that line up sometimes perfectly. And then you have places like Brazil, um, which are, you know, very young, vibrant population, uh, great storytelling culture, great move, great television market, great movie cultures, uh, and just people who are just hungry for great content. So we're, um, uh, those, that was kind of one of our early breakouts uh, for international was our success in Brazil. And I think it has a lot to do with the excitement and vibrance of the population in Brazil. We'll be right back. Strictly Business is brought to you in part by City National Bank, the bank who makes it their business to be personal. A City National relationship manager can anticipate the financial needs that make the entertainment and tech industries tick. That's because they've been doing it for more than 65 years. Need to figure out day-to-day -day finances? Done. Someone that understands intellectual property, licensing, and royalties? Absolutely. City National understands the industry because they were born in it. Visit cnb.com and get started. City National Bank, member FDIC. Welcome back to Strictly Business. Here's more of my conversation with Ted Sarandos, co-CEO and chief content officer for Netflix. Do you find that in like the bigger in the bigger global global markets in Europe and Latin America and Asia, do you find that your biggest competitors tend to be regional or local players, or are you going? You know, you feel like you get this the same sort of um, competition from an Amazon or from other so from the other, you know, some of the some of the competitors that are active in the U.S. as well. Yeah, uh, they're pretty much the same pool of folks. You know, the, the the thing that we're competing with mostly is for you know with folks for what for time that they're spending on screens. So that can be through traditional television or through uh, various uh, you know uh, subscription services, and also things like YouTube. You know, many mm -hmm. countries uh, television watching is dominated by YouTube. 
So we're uh, we're looking at all that. We look at all those markets and all those folks who we compete with, but we mostly focus on our members and mostly try to focus on how do you make these folks happy? How do you make the shows that they can't live without? Um, and if we focus on that, we don't have to worry too much about competitors. Um, we know that it's a big, enormous market, and there's going to be multiple players. You know, there's hundreds of ca- of channels of cable television around the world uh, and satellite television. There are uh, countless numbers of video competitors on the internet. Uh, so you look at that and say, you know, we we always know there's going to be folks that we're uh, competing with for people's affinity and love and attention and time. Uh, and we do that by with through great storytelling and delivering a great product for people. So when they push play. Uh, anywhere in the world, uh, it works. Um, and it's in many cases in the local language. Uh, and it's uh, oriented to what your taste is so that you could find great things to watch. Uh, and that's that great kind of convergence of, of great tech and great storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I think you guys have, have accurately said that one of your biggest competitors is, in fact, sleep. <laughs> when- <laughs> but we want people to sleep, though. We do <laughs> want people to sleep. Don't, don't sacrifice any any. Don't, don't sacrifice any sleep time. We want some of your, more of your screen time, but your sleep time, please keep, uh, keep sleeping. <laughs> it's important. Um, obviously, COVID has been the curve, just has been an enormous curveball for virtually every economic sector in every country on the planet. Have you, um, have you, did you have to adjust either up or down or make big changes into your, into the, your plans for your content spending in 2020? Has it been, yeah. been much revisions? The, the main thing I'm really proud of, you know, we throughout the one thing that really benefits from being a, a internet a global company is that throughout the early stages of, of the COVID shutdown, uh, in some places they did not shut down, like in Iceland and Sweden. Uh, and we were able to uh, figure out safety protocols that have served us really well all over the world in our productions. We're mostly up and running uh, and with our productions all over the world, we're shooting about a hundred yards from here, where I'm sitting right now uh, um, on a stage, uh, and it's I and it's making me a little crazy. That I can't go over there because our code because of our protocol uh, safety protocols uh, that I don't go visit the sets. Uh, but those sets and the safety protocols uh, have kept these uh, operations incredibly safe and healthy, uh, and make the talent feel very comfortable uh, that they are being protected and looked out for. Uh, so at first it was, we don't, we didn't really spend that much time thinking what's this all going to cost. Um, but because, because it really wasn't optional and it was not a great thing to, to cut corners on when you're talking about um, creating a safe work environment of any kind. Uh, so we didn't, and we really built what I think is a state of the art safety protocols around our productions and, uh, and the, the art of this thing going forward, because I'm afraid that, you know, COVID-19 is going to be with us for a while. Um, that the art of all this is really going to be how to manage in a world with COVID-19 um, and how to keep people safe and working. And that's what we've been really focused on. And the cost of it has been, um, you know, uh, not the leading priority. Of course, it's a factor. Uh, and what's really nice about it is because of all these safety protocols and people being very supportive of these safety protocols, that productions run much smoother. So you actually save some shooting days sometimes. Uh, shooting days are shorter. Um, the, uh, the sets are better run and better organized. There's fewer people uh, on sets sometimes, but you keep it uh, easy. You keep the, the trains running on time. Uh, so there's been some recovery in that too. Uh, and so we just, we find is that, you know, the, the other thing too is you get unforeseen benefits, uh, financial benefits of uh, when people aren't sick and getting sick. Going into flu season, 
all these safety protocols for COVID are going to prevent people also from getting the flu as frequently as they did. And you would lose shooting days to the flu before. So uh, in general, I think it's been uh, not, as, um, uh, not as, as, as difficult a financial pain point to do the right thing. Uh, and we've been managing both. Have you found, are there, I mean, there are, there, obviously there are countries that got up and running sooner. Has there been any examples of how they're handling the protocols or, or just aspects of dealing with life in a COVID time? Any places that have impressed you, you know, outside the U.S., any places that impressed you with the way that, that, that local governments or, you know, authorities have gone about dealing with the COVID crisis? I think everyone has got their different flavors of these things. So I think in general that, you know, we, I think, you know, North America was very slow to reopen uh, relative to the rest of other places in the world. And I don't fault that, uh, you know, this is, not, this is a good time to be careful. Uh, but I, in, in a way, it kind of gave everybody the opportunity to figure out things. I, I think one thing that was great was the countries like, um, like South Korea, uh, one of the benefits, I, I think that what they did right was, um, you know, uh, large scale testing a big, uh, a federal um, response. I think the countries that took that, that took this serious at a federal level um, have advanced things like production and all forms of essential work um, is back to, you know, near normal in many of these countries who took a big um, federal uniform response to, to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you in terms of as you're, you have an ever-changing lineup of content, how, what, are, what are your most important metrics for evaluating shows? How there are program, you know, program shows, movies, yeah. documentaries. What are the key things that you look at to see if they're resonating? In this way, Netflix is pretty traditional, like to, um, meaning that audience, audience matters. Are people showing up? Are they loving the shows? Uh, the things that we can bring to that, that, you know, it's more, a little more difficult to measure in, in, old, in traditional media. I said almost said old media, sorry. Uh, is uh, things like, um, you know, what people watch in the first 24 hours. So that gives you a good signal that people actually join Netflix to watch that show. So that show is more valuable than other shows in that way. Um, are they finishing the show? Do they finish it quickly? Meaning, are they so addicted to the show that they really love it? And that kind of watching, that kind of level of passion uh, is more valuable than just casual watching. And it's monetized, uh, you know, through positive word of mouth and retention and all those kind of things. So they're all signals that are relatively easy for us to manage, to, to measure, um, that to, 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 to land on a, in a world where all viewing isn't equal. Um, and so in that way, but, but at the end of the day, relative to what the show cost, does it attract, you know, a big enough audience who care enough about the show to keep going? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, how do you... I should point out too, you know, it's interesting, the, because I think the television world has so much grown up around you know, the core financial model of syndication mm-hmm. that, that the whole measure of success is how long a show runs and right. getting a show to into syndication you know, getting to that magic hundred episodes uh, was so much the measure of success in old media uh, that I just don't think, I think that that's why there gets an undue attention when shows don't go longer in the new kind of uh, premium uh, SVOD world. And I don't know that it is necessarily the measure of success I think that we get the opportunity uh, to tell stories for exactly as long as you should. You know, I think a lot of times you watch a lot of shows and they run out of creative a lot sooner than they run out of episodes. Uh, and in general, I really, what I'm really thrilled about is sometimes we could, you know, sometimes the perfect 
shelf life for a show, the perfect running time for a show is three seasons or four seasons or six seasons or eight seasons, whatever it is. But the uniform measure of success being, you know, long running, uh, I don't think, I think it's a very unusual thing that emerged, I think mostly tied to the golden prize of getting to syndication that is really no longer, uh, you know, the, the pot of gold that it once was in television. And I feel like I have for, for minimum five years, probably closer to eight years, have been writing nothing about how things used to be and how they are now. So, so that, is, that is absolutely so true. It used to be that you built, you know, the, the, the absolute end goal was to build something that you could last as long as possible because it was tied to time-sensitive schedules and time-sensitive schedules and everything. And there, are, and there are times that there's a story or a world or a... a uh, or some IP that is really built perfectly, you know, for 15 years of storytelling. Not, there's not, not that frequently, uh, but they exist and they're usually valuable when you could, if you could find them. Uh, but I, you know, I, I do think, you know, we've go, I, I think our shows, if what I don't want to ever get into the position of doing is, uh, you know, trying to prop up a show beyond its creative life. Uh, I don't think creators are happy doing it either. So, and I, and I like the opportunity of doing a lot of, you know, having a lot of slots, uh, is that they get the opportunity to tell another story. You know, the, the big reason why I think people wanted these shows to last forever is that sometimes they didn't get a second or third shot at it because it was because the shelf space was so limited. It's the bringing in Cousin Oliver syndrome. Exactly. <laughs> a, a final season. And pretty soon you're punching sharks and you're trying to keep going. You know, you're trying to go, maybe. Do you, is this something that you talk, talk about with your creators early on in the process do you talk about like what is the what is the the long arc for this do you see this as three seasons or four seasons are you having those conversations earlier given that the mindset is i want to go as long often is i want to go as long as possible yeah and i I would say look going back to our earliest shows um the crown peter morgan could tell you nearly every story beat of six seasons of the crown when we met and you, you know, not that many, there's not that many people who could tell, you know, basically you get a season, you get a, a sometimes a pilot script and sometimes a, se- a season Bible and then a kind of very loose series Bible. Like, where's this going over time? And, you know, and the, by the time you get to the fourth or fifth one, it's a sentence. Uh, and in this case, I, you know, Peter had talked about uh, literally the stories of when they would break, how they would break, you know, through every season of this show. And that's why it's been such a thrill to watch it unfold so closely to how we pitched it. Uh, in most cases, I don't think people really have that clear a vision uh, of the creative vision. I think they think they can say, this is a world that you can keep exploring and keep going deeper. Um, these are characters that you want to age with. Um, all of those things are possible in television. It's just not that common. Let me ask you, Ted, you, you had a ma- major change in your, uh, in your operation in the management side with, recently with Cindy Holland, a longtime lieutenant of yours, has left, Bella Bajaria was, was elevated. Can you tell me what drove that? Why did you change the structure in that way? Um, some of it was triggered on the co-CEO arrangement with Reed, meaning I was taking on some other responsibilities inside the company uh, and, and, and had me second look at my direct report organization and how to, how, how to kind of streamline things a bit. And we've had great success running film and animation uh, and and uh, is uh, is as uh, global organizations. Uh, our stand-up comedy group was doing you know global stand-up comedy. Uh, the only thing that really was 
regionalized this way really was our television efforts. Uh, we had very strong teams regionally. Uh, and I looked at that and said I wanted to have a global head of television uh, that could head that up. And in that world, thinking about the things that were going to be incredibly important to us for the next decade, um, you know, local language, original programming, um, uh, the, the enormous growth we've seen in, unscript, in unscripted television, which is still kind of in its infancy. Um, uh, Bella built uh, the unscripted team inside of Netflix, uh, now headed by Brandon Reed, who she brought over with her. I remember when, I, when we hired Bella, she had never worked on unscripted television. And she built up, you know, brought Brandon and they architected this team and this slate of original unscripted shows uh, so successfully. Um, after doing that for a little while, she stepped into the role of the local, running the local language originals everywhere outside of the U.S., again, having never worked in international television. Uh, and it has had a remarkable track record of building and rebuilding that team for me. Uh, and when I look at that, on top of the fact that she had such enormous success at uh, Universal Television, uh, and mm -hmm. in fact, was a great supplier to Netflix before she joined us, right. uh, developing great shows like uh, Master of None and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, and was a really instrumental in getting um, uh, Never Have I Ever to Netflix. Uh, I, I thought it was a no-brainer that Bella had the experience uh, and the leadership skills uh, to take on all of those things that are going to be so important for the next, you know, next 20 years at Netflix. Uh, and Cindy was a great partner getting uh, all this built. Uh, but I think in the if you know looking at it the the challenges and the opportunities of the next twenty years that Bella was so perfectly positioned to lead through that. Those of us that have known Bella a while are not at all surprised that she is in fact on top of the world now. Yes, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> I guess my last question for you, Ted, you sort of touched on, but um, you were recently elevated to co-CEO with Reed Hastings. How does you know you've been an architect of Netflix for years now, but how does the view look different uh, at all? If how does the view look different, if at all, as co-CEO? Well, you know, I, like, like to your point, uh, Reed and I have been doing this together for a really long time. You know, the migration from DVD to streaming, and from streaming to original production, and from you know, domestic to international and global—all uh, those things—we were, you know, very closely aligned in, in making those decisions, both in how to time them out, uh, how to invest in them, how to build the teams to support. You know, we've done all those things together for a very long time. So Reed very generously says we've been, I've been co-CEO for a long time. Uh, but um, this is more, uh, so people, I, 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 I would say that my day-to-day -day hasn't changed very dramatically because we've been running things that way for a long time. Um, and I think it's been, you know, under getting the opportunity to do this with somebody, a real visionary like Reed um, has been a remarkable gift. And I think being able to, to co-lead Netflix with him uh, is the gift that keeps on giving uh, because it's a, it's a surprise to me to have an executive. Uh, usually people are very good in the weeds or they're very good on the clouds and Reed is really good in both, you know, and his ability to look, see around the corner, uh, to ask hard questions about things that he really doesn't, you know, may or not have experience in um, has been something that has uh, enabled me to run fast uh, his kind of, lack of ego in this uh, to enable to, to allow me to exist at the profile that I do at Netflix all this time is really unusual, as you know, uh, in an entertainment company. So it's been a great thing. And I think my day-to-day, -day, while it hasn't shifted much, uh, I really am looking forward to the, to the next several years doing this together. So it's really uh, an exciting time. Well, again, two, you can't find two executives that have had a bigger impact on the global business of entertainment in, the, in many decades. So 
uh, Ted, we thank you for your time. Thank you for answering all of my questions. And uh, again, congratulations on the Vanguard Award from Variety and MIPCOM that is very, very well deserved. Thank you so much. Do you mind if I take a second and thank a few folks for this? Go for it. Once again, I wanted to, uh, first of all, all of our uh, members around the world, many of which are uh, stuck at home or sometimes have, some have uh, who've been uh, affected by the, by the impact of, of, the, of COVID-19. Uh, our thoughts and prayers are with you and our goal is to keep you entertained uh, while you're home. Uh, I would obviously thank MIPCOM and Variety for this great honor. They send it to me ahead of time. Thank you so much. Uh, I've get, one of the great gifts of this role is you get to, to meet all your heroes. And uh, in the last, less than the, just in the last year, uh, some of got, had lost a few of them who have gotten to be very, who have been very friendly, very friend, friendly with and inspired by like Leonard Goldberg, uh, who put almost every show that I cared about on television when I was young, uh, uh, Carl Reiner, uh, mm -hmm. on top of being uh, a, a real architect of television, you know, starting back, you know, with, with the, your show of shows and Dick Van Dyke, mm -hmm. had an enormous influence on me um, mm -hmm. and getting to know him before he passed. Uh, a, a real kind of guy, basically, he, I think of Carl Reiner as like the origin of American comedy. Uh, so it's just, it was a real uh, joy in my life to get to know him before he passed. Uh, and then it makes you really appreciate the legends who are still around, who I can pick up the phone and, and get advice from or support from uh, or kicked, kicked by. <laughs> and that's folks like Bob Daly, uh, you know, who came right after, uh, right after Bill Paley. Uh, in television, it's a really remarkable uh, resource to get to have, to have Bob on speed dial. Uh, Norman Lear, uh, mm -hmm. who you know, who is uh, not just a, a legend uh, from the beginning of television, maybe the first guy who was first to be a television writer before he was a radio writer, and still doing it, still making great television, uh, and a, such an incredibly decent human being. And I'm just, it's a real gift uh, to have access to folks like that. And, and doing all this work, um, it takes a lot of time and it takes me a lot of time away from home. Uh, and of course, I just I could, would none of that, none of this would be possible without the sacrifice and support and love of uh, my wife, Nicole, uh, and my kids, Tony and Sarah, uh, who we, we all make trade-offs to make all this work. And I just am endlessly appreciative of uh, the time uh, and support that they give me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. Strictly Business is brought to you in part by City National Bank, the bank who makes it their business to be personal. A City National Relationship Manager can anticipate the financial needs that make the entertainment and tech industries tick. That's because they've been doing it for more than 65 years. Need to figure out day-to-day -day finances? Done. Someone that understands intellectual property, licensing, and royalties? Absolutely. City National understands the industry because they were born in it. Visit cnb.com and get started. City National Bank, member FDIC.